Welcome to the Composer Studio Podcast. On the Composer Studio, we listen to the music of living composers. We talk to them about their writing process, and we learn about the world of music that they live and work in. I'm Tarek Iridala. And I'm Anna Linville. Today our guest is composer George Saquon Lam, Hong Kong-born composer and associate professor at the Department of Music at Hong Kong Baptist University. George has previously served as assistant professor of music at York College, the City University of New York. He's also a founding member of the artist-run New Opera Ensemble, Rhymes with Opera, based in New York City. For anyone who, uh, who doesn't know, George is, is in Hong Kong right now, so while it's 9.30 p.m. our time, it's 9.30 a.m. his time. It is, and actually it's, a, it's a, also a nice holiday weekend here in Hong Kong right now. So yesterday was the National Day, and then today is um, the day off for the Mid-Autumn Festival. So it's a, it's a nice sort of respite for a few days, I think, from a lot of the, you know, the COVID you know, bits <laughs> that we had to deal yeah. with. Uh, and, and it's been, uh, yeah, so it's been nice to come back home here, uh, because I, I just moved here about two months ago to start a new job. And it's, it's nice to sort of see the city in a different perspective and also, you know, be a, also a composer and a, a teacher, uh, back in Hong Kong, you know, which is, which is good. I'm learning lots. Yeah. Yeah. How long, how long has it been since you were there? Because you lived um, in New York for a long time. Yeah, that's right. So I've I moved. So I was uh, I was born in Hong Kong in nine, um, mm-hmm. in in nineteen eighty one, uh, and then I moved uh, out of Hong Kong in ninety two. So and then I moved to to Boston. But ever since then, I've basically been in school. So you know, middle school, high school, and then college, but then also teaching. And so uh-huh. uh, I've been coming back pretty regularly for summers and, and winters, usually summers when I, when I can get the, the time off. Uh, so I, yeah, I come back pretty regularly, uh, even when I was teaching in, in New York City at CUNY for the past seven years or so. Uh, but it's still odd to sort of, it's very odd actually to, to be here during the school year because I've never experienced any of these holidays um, because I, I was never able to because I had to work. So so uh, what's the, what is what do they do? For the, yeah, for the autumn so the holiday. Yeah, the festival is nice. Um, it's on the lunar calendar of uh, August 15th or the eighth month, the 15th day. Uh, and, and, the, and the idea is that the moon is at its fullest during that month. So you would uh, gather around with your family, um, you know, sort of, uh, and, and have a dinner, but also, uh, if possible, go out and see the moon. So it's very round and full, just like a metaphor for getting everyone together in a circle, you know, in your, in your family. Uh, and then you would also light lanterns. So when I was a kid, you would get these little uh, lanterns made out of sort of cellophane and, and other paper, paper materials with candles. And you would, as a kid, that's sort of like one, one of the few days in the year that you can sort of uh, very legitly uh, you play with fire outside. So, uh, so that's also fun to walk around with a, with a, a nice lantern. But yeah, so that's what you do. Did you have a chance, you know, when you were living in New York with your family, um, did you celebrate these holidays in New York? Um, how did you, how did your parents keep your culture alive for you while you were living in the U.S.? Yeah, uh, well, I was lucky enough to have been 
living in Boston, uh, which has a large Asian American population, Chinese American population. So there's a Chinatown, of course, in Boston. That's where I grew up, and so a, a lot of that culture, you know, gets filtered through this sort of Asian American Boston uh, lens. And so you still have the festivals like uh, like New Year's and other things. Of course, you don't get sort of days off for it, which has always been um, very, very odd. You know, you, have to, you still have to go to school during the Lunar New Year, which is basically the, the uh, largest, you know, most important holiday in the, in the calendar. However, I think they do get Lunar New Year off now, um, which is nice in both New York and Boston. Uh, but yeah, so through the Chinatown and uh, community and people that, that we meet, um, and also the the uh, the things that happen, you know, around that that neighborhood, you know, you you get a sense of it, right? And then also, I was also living with um, my my aunt, my uncle, who has been here in the states for a lot longer than 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 we have. So um, so yeah, it was really actually interesting to to see it from a from a first and second generation uh, Asian American point of view. So um, why did your parents leave Hong Kong and, and go to New York? Yeah, so it was during a time in the 90s when everyone in Hong Kong was uh, a bit more apprehensive about the handover. Uh, so mm-hmm. Hong Kong was a, a British colony um, uh, that was about to be handed back over to China in 1997. So this was around 92, so the early 90s. So I, uh, you know, a lot of my friends who were in grade school uh, were more, um, yeah, again, they, all of their families, they were more apprehensive about what's going to happen. So a lot of folks got green cards and green card equivalents to other countries uh, in Canada and Australia and the UK and such. And they started moving away. So they started mm-hmm. emigrating um, outside of Hong Kong. And a lot of those families, a lot of those people actually in the, uh, in the, the years following the handover, uh, you know, around the, the millennium turn of the millennium and, and such the early 2000s, mid 2000s started coming back to Hong Kong. Uh, uh, but, but that was sort of the, um, the, the big sort of drive to, to leave Hong Kong. And so at that time, I think we might have uh, applied for a green card just to, you know, have, have that option. And then it came through. And then I think my mom just asked, you know, Hey, so there's this thing, um, that you can, you can leave, grade five or you know we you can finish grade five here in hong kong and start grade six in in america would you be interested and i said yes and so actually just my my mom came with me my dad stayed here to uh to work Mm -hmm. but my mom came with me and we lived with my aunt who who was you know basically set up uh her her and her family and her her life in in boston so it wasn't as sort of a from scratch transition Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. um but yeah, so that was basically it was for my uh, it was for my education in a way, um, primarily, so I could get a different perspective on things. Mm. So valuable. Very nice. It's nice, and then it's it was fun, you know, uh, being in the Northeast, and then it was also great because I I basically stayed on in in America to go to grad school. I went to. Uh, I went to do my master's degree at the Peabody Conservatory, and then, yeah. uh, and then I moved down to Durham, North Carolina, 
for about five years to uh, to go to to work at Duke as a PhD student. And it was also nice to see how sort of Chinese culture uh, is still around parts of the East Coast, even if you're not in the Northeast. So, you know, there's still people around Maryland, of course, uh, fewer folks, uh, you know, fewer sort of a smaller bit of Chinatown in Durham, but there's still, <laughs> there's still, uh, you know, grocery stores and smaller communities around Raleigh, you know, uh, and it's, it's interesting to see how that sort of uh, plays out in, in the less dense parts of America. You have a, a piece of music that we're going to take a listen to first. Uh, and, but first, I'd like to spend a few moments talking about it. The Emigrants. It was mm-hmm. commissioned by the New Morse Code, and they performed the world premiere of the work in December of 2018. So it's a relatively recent piece. You describe the piece as a documentary, a documentary for chamber ensemble. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about the piece and how your personal experience has helped give birth to the piece? The idea I've had with music, I'm going to step back a little bit. Um, in the last, I don't know, uh, something like 10, 10, nine years or so, I've been trying to figure out, hey, what kinds of uh, projects do I really want to spend time on? And from my time at, uh, at Duke University, when I had to figure out uh, a bigger project that I want to, to, uh, to, to get involved in, I thought the, of the idea of writing documentary music because I wanted to find a way for music to be a record for reality in some way, in the same way that you would use the medium of film to record and represent and filter. And But also, I think looking back at it now, I was mostly interested in creating a piece where I can have it be performed in a place where the music is very much a, um, a reflection of the place itself, uh, very uh, connected with the, the ge- geographical location where the audience can sit there and listen to it, but can see everything around them differently. So this, this idea started with uh, my work in Durham with a piece called The Persistence of Smoke, The Persistence of Smoke. And it's a documentary opera, that's what I called it, where I interviewed a lot of people uh, that were connected with the former cigarette warehouses and the former cigarette industry that was in Durham and has now, uh, the cigarette industry has basically left Durham downtown. And so uh, all those empty buildings were being converted into other uses. And so I I made a whole bunch of uh, interviews. I worked with a playwright to look at how to bring some of the themes of the interviews into an opera and we staged the opera in an empty warehouse. And so that was the beginning of an idea of, Hey, how do we use music to respond to a story uh, that's related to a community related to a place? And so fast forward to um, about four or five years ago, when I started working with new Morse code on this project, this uh, idea came back to me and I, and when I had the chance to work on this new piece for them, I asked them, uh, the players in the group, what kinds of uh, subjects or what kinds of stories might you be interested in if we were to do something similar, like a interview-based piece. And the members of, at the moment, uh, when I was working with them, there were three members in the group, now there are two, but uh, even 
all of the members in the group were interested in the idea of being expatriates, being uh, people who have been outside of the U.S. for one reason or another, uh, to study, to work uh, for, for an extended amount of time and how that experience affected them as musicians. And so having workshopped that idea a little bit and thought through it, uh, eventually it filtered through my process and it became, uh, to me, and I, you know, it became the idea about writing music, about writing a piece of music about immigrants, the immigrant um, population of Queens, because that's where I was working and living in Queens, New York. Queens is a borough, one of the five boroughs of New York City, and it is one of the the most diverse communities in the whole country. Um, and there are lots of people from different backgrounds, uh, very much first-generation Americans settling and bringing their cultures to Queens. And they're all sort of jammed up against one another and in very, very uh, in dense neighborhoods that are all accessible by the subway. So you can take a subway from one corner of Queens to another, and it will be a completely different uh, geographical location but also a different culture and i wanted to focus on that because i wanted to bring the group to queens to perform and i said you know why don't we make this piece about queens and then on top of that we're going to make it about queens immigrants and then eventually i wanted to further narrow it down to uh, immigrant musicians because i also haven't really ever written a, i have never written a piece about musicians or about music in particular and that seemed like a, a interesting challenge and then even more uh, intimate connection with what the performance would be, which would be a concert. So that's the that's the start of the the project. The first piece we're going to listen to is the third movement of the emigrants. Can you tell us quickly what's the difference between an immigrant and an emigrant? Sure. So the idea of the emigrant is to focus on the emigration. That is to say, leaving home. When we talk about immigration, we're focusing a little bit more about how they can come here to the United States, what prerequisites they must satisfy, how long they can stay, you know, if their stay is legal. What I wanted to focus on is how they left. So why they left, what did they leave behind? Uh, why have they not just up and gone back home? Uh, that's part of what I was, uh, was looking at in the, in the difference, slight difference between the idea of immigrant and immigrants. Um, also because, you know, there was a while ago, I, uh, I, I read a novel by Seabolt that's with the title of The Emigrants. And it's about, uh, it's about four stories connected that were about people who were fleeing World War II uh, Nazi uh, rule in, in many ways. And it was, again, it was, it was focusing on leaving and that that idea really took hold for me uh, and that word. So that's why I, I chose to stuck, stick with it. So this movement is called Translations, has a subtitle. Mm. Can you can you just um, give us a quick um, idea of what to expect and what we should be listening for in this piece? Sure. Um, the idea here is that the music is responding to the text itself through the speech rhythms. So a lot of the snippets of interview that you're going to hear are translated into music by analyzing by my analysis of their the speech rhythms and the way that we speak uh the contours the pitch uh the fast and slow uh ness of the way we speak and the way that the interviewees uh speak of course the other idea is 
translations, meaning the the primary language of all of these, um, the original language that they learned of all of these interviewees uh, was not English or not just English. And so in their own coming to America, they also had to translate not only the language, but a lot of their culture and different ways of thinking and living into a new home, in a new context. And find a common language that we could speak. Music is the only thing that is not bound by words. And find a common language that we could speak. We cannot express everything we feel with words because words will limit you back. Because I have a Japanese heritage, I probably can express more things through this music. So I have to actually compare my instrument to a sitar to make them understand what it is. And trying to have my music speak to them, that's a challenge. Last year, actually, I published a book for kids. So at this specific time, what I'm doing right now, I'm, I'm translating that book into Spanish. translating that book into Spanish. So it takes me a, a lot to make a version in Spanish. Believe it or not, the translation is not easy. And trying to have my music speak to them, that's a challenge. lucky enough to find uh, musicians from other styles to be able to work with them and find a common language that we could speak. Music is the only thing that is not bound by words. I thought I could do something with my music but differently. I, Even with my traditional background I thought I would be able to play Carnatic music, maybe not in the sense what I was doing back in India, but something with a different take, with a different dimension. How do officers manage all these images we see after you know regular ordinary day of work? What do they do to get this out of their heads? Because for me, I have, uh, I got turned to music. Music is the only thing that is not bound by words. Because I have a Japanese heritage, I probably can express more things through this music. So I have to actually compare my instrument to a sitar to make them understand what it is. And trying to have my music speak to them, that's a challenge. We cannot express everything we feel with words, because words will limit you back.
So you change. People change day by day, or even hour by hour. You notice it. You get old. You you talk different. I would definitely say this is uh, really a God-given gift and find a common language that we could speak. So, George, with, with regard to composing the piece... Talk to us a little bit about the interviews and how you conducted them. Um, did you have questions in advance that you asked them? And did, was it a question and answer kind of thing? Or did you just want to hear them speak about their experience? Yeah, so I had questions. I had a few questions. I wanted to make sure that I asked them about their homes, uh, where they come from, and sort of what they were like how work was like as a musician back home before coming to New York. Uh, but mostly I, I also had a conversation with them, right? You know, these were sort of prompts to get a conversation going. And it was, uh, it was really great. I mean, I, I wanted to thank, again, all of the seven interviewees that were able to uh, talk with me and share with me their, their knowledge and their feelings about uh, about the adventure of coming to New York and being a musician from various different you know, levels of, uh, of, well, not levels, but from various different contexts uh, and, and from various different cultures. But yeah, so it was a, it was a, just a more of a conversation that starts with these questions, partly because I wanted to make sure that I'm, I'm keeping the theme of it more about how they left and what that transition was like. Yeah. So what was one of the most interesting um, things you learned during those interviews? Gosh, there were a lot of, uh, a lot of folks, I think, who, who came to New York because it was really part of an American dream. For example, one of the interviewees, his name is Rafael Leal, and he is a Colombian percussionist drummer who has written a book to teach Colombian percussion rhythms you know, to anyone who wants to, to know about it, but also for drummers to incorporate that vocabulary into their own practice. When I asked him about why he wanted to come to New York, even though you know, his family is, is back home. And so one, he, he came to America because of his son, but also a big part of it he mentioned was that this was his dream to come to, to New York, to, to America, because this is where all his heroes, hero musicians were. Uh, and it was a great way for him to just be here and feel a connection to them. And I think that's quite powerful to me. You know, for me, I've taken American for granted in many ways. I have been lucky enough to have had the opportunity to uh, study and you know go to public schools and uh, private universities and everything in between, uh, and just to be at different places where I am able to just focus on you know studies and not having to sort of uh, uh, have a lot of different challenges and figure out how to how to keep being here. But on the other hand, you know, I, there are lots of people who, even though it's quite challenging to to move and to stay in a place ex as expensive as New York. Uh, that they make it work because 
because it's part of their dream and it's it's something that sustains their practice as musicians uh, precisely because of that uh, energy that's in New York City, that access to a lot of different cultures and performances, uh, but also this diversity that's, that's there that made me realize how special America as a whole is, but also uh, Queens and New York City in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you say that that's the message you're trying to send to the listeners? I think that's definitely part of the message. Uh, it's different messages. So one is if you are familiar with uh, with New York City and with Queens, one of the messages is that, hey, the people that you don't meet, but the people who you're living with in New York City, uh, that their stories around all of us. And hopefully this piece will get you to think about these people and these stories and music in general and New York in a slightly different way. But for everyone else who, uh, for whom New York, New York City is, you know, it's not where, you know, particularly of, of familiarity or of maybe of interest, the general idea here is, of course, that this country is built on, on immigrants, uh, immigrants into the country and immigrants from other countries. And that in addition to the conversation about who should be here, and why should they be let in? We also need to keep in mind the abundant cultural heritage that all of these different people come with, that they enrich our collective culture in ways that we cannot really even measure or fathom because it's, it's, there's just so many. And it's, it's not just in the cities, it's, it's everywhere. So the message here is to think about uh, through this piece, through this music, just how rich and diverse of a resource and uh, and and an addition to our 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 own American culture that everyone uh, who immigrated to the United States bring with them. So the next piece we're going to talk about today is Cicerieta Jones. This is a is it's you would call it a would you call it a tone poem or um... It's it's a song. Yeah, I would say um, maybe an art song. Although it's it's hard song. to it's hard to categorize actually. Yeah, yeah, it's more orchestral, isn't it? So it's kind of part opera, part yeah, art song. Yeah, somewhere in between mm-hmm. there. And this is a poem. It was uh, Cicerietta Jones. She was an American soprano. A, mm-hmm. She was a black woman, maybe one of the first black opera singers in the United States. Um, she lived from 1868 to 1933. So, you know, she was someone who was kind of at the very beginning of Black integration into, you know, mainstream cultural activities, you know. Right. So she, she, she trained at the New England Conservatory of Music and performed for presidents, um, which is kind of amazing mm-hmm. uh, when you think about, you know, in the 19... 19- 50s, people like Nina Simone were refused admission to Juilliard because they were Black. And the Metropolitan Opera didn't cast a Black singer until the 50s um, in in one of its operas. Marian Anderson, I think, was the first one. Um, So what was it about Cisrieta's story that appealed to you as a composer? Yeah. So this was a project that came about uh, as a commission as part of a my residency with the Chautauqua Opera Company, and this is in 2018. 
Chautauqua Opera is part of the Chautauqua Institution. It's a long-standing cultural institution, a summer festival, if you will, uh, in Western New York, where writers and performers and thinkers uh, all sort of gather in this sort of idyllic uh, part of uh, lakeside part of, of Chautauqua, New York for a summer. And the summer festival also includes a theater company uh, and a, an opera company. And so the idea was to bring in a composer in residence to the opera company to engage with the audience who come to see the opera and to work with the young artists that they hire every year to stage uh, the three, usually the three main stage operas. When I was asked to write pieces for the young artists, so this particular piece is uh, for soprano and piano for, for one of the young artists in the young artist program at Chautauqua Opera. When I was approached to write something here, I wanted to work with a poem where the poet is going to be on the grounds during that concert. Because there's also, again, there's also sort of a series, a lecture series uh, of writers that come to Chautauqua and, and speak. And we had the schedule done. So I knew exactly for this concert who the poets are going to be. <laughs> and I picked out of the a lot of the poets who are going to be around that week who can come to the concert. Uh, I, I picked uh, a poem by Tahimba Jess. And he was gracious enough to allow me to write a, a piece of music using his poem. Uh, the project uh, got started that way. The poem is from his book, Olio, which won the 2017 Pulitzer Prize in Poetry. And it's a remarkable collection of poems because it chronicles the African-American experience uh, through the eyes of uh, real performers, real African-American performers in the, the turn of the 20th century. We refracted through a kind of a minstrel show. So the minstrelsy part of it is throughout the idea of these performers performing Blackness uh, through poetry. And some of the poems are really, really uh, innovative in that Jess was using the actual form of the poem printed on the page itself. Some of the poems, you know, he's asking you to, to take out the page and wrap it around, you know, and you read it this, this, this other way. And it was, uh, if, you, if you can get a hold of that book, it's, it's really quite something. And so one of the poems is a poem that's focusing on, of course, Cesarita Jones. There are a few poems about her. And this is, I think, the first one that she makes the entrance. You know, this is her grand entrance into the book. And Cesarita Jones, as you mentioned, uh, a African-American uh, soprano in the early 20th century. She was called the Black Potty. Um, and, and she was very popular. She became the first African-American singer to sing at Carnegie Hall. And mm -hmm. this was a, uh, in and of itself remarkable because this was at a time when someone like Cecilia Jones would not be cast as Aida, for example, mm -hmm. over, you know, a few streets over at the Metropolitan Opera because of her skin color. Uh, even though uh, it would be, you know, Aida would be uh, a role that's African descent, right? And so that was the impetus for uh, Jess's imagining of Cesarita Jones's first grand aria in this in this collection. Uh, and unfortunately, Cesarita Jones died very poor. She did not 
sort of she was not able to capitalize somehow on that success. Uh, and there were she she lived a very troubled life towards the end of her her life, and it was a uh, it was in it of itself. It's also a remarkable story. Uh, this poem, yes, it's uh, it's it's a sort of a aria. It's a very operatic aria for the singer. And what I've done here is to respond a lot to Tayemba Jess's words, uh, and in the similar way to the emigrants, it's thinking about the the text rhythms, the the ways that Tahimba or anyone else reading the poem might interpret it spoken and the inherent musicality that comes from spoken poetry. So a lot of the the song that you're going to hear, the sort of first big part of it is uh, what uh, it would be what's termed as, as recitative in opera. So something that is most most like sung speech, so sort of speaking, but um, but but through pitches, and it's almost like a sing-songy speech, where the piano can follow the singer and where the singer can really take the lead. So instead of the piano giving an accompaniment and it has a rhythm like um, pa pa um, pa pa something like that, um, the singer is really in control, and the whole piece has no bar lines. Uh, and I took out the the time signature so that uh, it needs the pianist to stay really close to what the singer is doing and be able to uh, turn on a dime, if you will. Uh, so that's the main idea for, for the piece.
wanted to mention that uh, Sisiretta Jones was commissioned by the American Opera Projects for the Chautauqua Opera Company and was part of the composer-in-residence program at the 2018 Chautauqua Opera. The piece was performed by Kayla White, soprano, and Emily Jarrell Urbanek, piano. George, you have a knack for writing vocal music. Um, you've done a lot of it. And uh, one of your big accomplishments was Rhymes with Opera, an organization and a group that you started in New York. Can you explain to us and inform us a little bit about what Rhymes with Opera is and how it got started? So yes, uh, Rhymes with Opera is a chamber opera company that is based in New York City. And it was founded by five performers and composers who have all been in the Peabody Conservatory uh, in Baltimore, Maryland for some part of our lives. And so in about, I think in 2007 or so, uh, we decided to start an opera company, an opera collective that uh, would commission and produce new operas, new chamber operas, uh, and and perform them. And at the start of it, it was uh, just me and my colleague, Ruby Fulton, who's a composer, uh, and we both met at Boston University. In fact, our senior project was 
to do a recital together and we decided to do an opera double bill and so this is sort of how it all happened uh and so we decided to you know we're both interested in opera and especially chamber opera and we decided to to put together a company where we can do more of that because uh, opera takes a lot of resources and and i for one wanted to spend more time on sort of putting it together than than spending more time on sort of looking for the next commission. So we were trying to do DIY to do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also along the way met uh, three, three singers, three, three singers who, uh, you know, joined our group, uh, Robert Merrill, Bonnie Lander, and Elizabeth Haldequan. And we've done a lot of smaller projects in Durham, in Baltimore, uh, in the early years, basically where both me and Ruby were. And in 2011, I moved to New York to start working for an opera company called Gotham Chamber Opera and uh, Music Theater Group, two companies together. And that's where we started to sort of coalesce a lot of the stuff into New York City. And so uh, last eight years or so, we were uh, basically commissioning, working with composers, uh, producing uh, uh, one main stage production per year. Uh, and we've done that every year, actually, except for this year, um, because yeah, things had to be uh, deferred because of the pandemic situation. Um, but we are excited about uh, the next next version of what we're going to do as a company. Uh, we're doing we're planning a new production of a wonderful piece called Red Giant. Uh, by composer Adam Matlock and librettist uh, Brian Slattery. And originally it was going to be a main stage production at the Flea Theater in downtown Manhattan in May 2020. But now it's going to be an online production with, uh, I think, with with different live elements um, uh, thrown in. So that's going to be in the spring of 2021. But yeah, so that's Rhymes with Opera. We're, we're making new operas in New York City, very tiny new operas. We're going to go ahead and transition to another piece of yours. It's another song called Such Sweet Sorrow. We'll take a listen to that. uh, And then when we come back, we can talk a little bit more about the piece. It's uh, the poem for this piece was written by Alison Joseph. And it's another work commissioned by the American Opera Projects for the Chautauqua Opera Company and part of the Composer in Residence program in the 2018 Chautauqua Opera. Brett Bode is the bass and Miriam Charney is on piano.
That was Such Sweet Sorrow by George Saquon Lam. George, this piece, you know, um, you know, I have lived and been taken around the world. You know, my husband was an army mm. officer. Um, and so we moved around quite a bit. And this piece really took me through a lot of the goodbyes that mm. we had to um, and, the, and the starting over and things. Was mm. it difficult for you to leave New York and um, start over again in Hong Kong? Yeah, in many ways, I think uh, it's it's always difficult to leave um, and and start somewhere new. Uh, but in this case, I'm fortunate enough to uh, to have the opportunity to come back and spend more time with my parents, but also uh, you know with with uh, an opportunity to move here with my partner Sean. Um, He's still working in New York, uh, NYU right now to finish a, finishing up a, um, a, a, a position, but uh, eventually he'll come join me here as well in Hong Kong. And so it will hopefully be a, a, a bit of an adventure for, for all of us. Uh, it, mm-hmm. So it's not exactly uh, a complete cutoff from New York City, but I do find it sad, uh, maybe wistful is the word, uh, to leave uh a lot of my students and colleagues uh, and at the school where I, I taught in the last seven years and, uh, and, and, you know, move on to this new thing. So, but yeah, the idea of the goodbyes. Um, and also I really love the idea that in this poem, by the way, this is a sonnet uh, and this is a part of a book of sonnets by Alison Joseph who's a wonderful poet, a book of love sonnets. Uh, and in, in this poem, you know, she mentioned the original meaning of goodbye 
uh, it's you know translated from God be with you. That is to say, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's not so much leaving as hey, mm-hmm. you are being taken care of, right? Spiritually, mm-hmm. uh, and I love that idea. It's it's not the separating, but that we're just giving you know uh, another way for us to experience the the, the distance. Mm-hmm. Um, the next piece we're going to listen to actually is a is a sacred piece. So it kind of goes along mm. with your what we we're just talking about. You're not leaving, but you're wishing them some kind of divine protection on right. their journey. Um, this piece is Carmina Barana was commissioned by the Hong Kong Voices, an ensemble of local musicians who highlight the rich sacred tradition. They highlight more of just masterpieces of chorus, but of okay. course that in itself will have a lot of sacred music, a lot of Christian uh, classical you know, classical music that's of the Christian variety, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, the you know anything from the B minor Mass, you know, from Bach or or any of the cantatas, right? So in this piece, I was trying to respond to the to, to their repertory of music um, that is. Inherently religious because of the Western classical tradition, um, and at the same time, uh, I wanted to do something with Latin. So they've also sung a lot with Latin again because of that, you know, of the rep. Uh, but I wanted to do a different take on it because uh, I I wanted to look, use secular Latin. So this is where I started looking at uh, the idea of the Camina Burana, which of course is a very famous Orf cantata. Uh, that uses a, a collection of Latin poetry that is not at all about uh, about uh, Christianity, about God, about religion, um, but it's uh, it's a bunch of some drinking songs, some songs about love, some songs about you know just uh, taking the day off and and being happy, uh, and so I went back to this collection of poems and I picked two that were not. Uh, set by Orf. <laughs> uh, one is uh, poking fun at the church. That's the first one. And the, the third movement, the three movements, and third movement, is, it's about a bunch of students partying. Uh, for the second movement, I, I picked a poem that's not in Latin, but it's in classical Chinese, uh, but it's written at about the same time as this uh, collection of poems. Uh, and this poem is a, is a love poem about just, a, just an unrequited love but sung in Cantonese, which uh, was what I wanted to do because everyone in that chorus is fluent in Cantonese. And Cantonese is a very uh, uh, interesting language to think about because it's tonal. Uh, it's, it depends on, the meaning of the words depend on the pitch that you say the words in. So it's quite a challenge to think about that in the context of setting it for chorus where you have multiple parts and every part has to sing the same-ish melody for the words to make sense. We're going to go ahead and listen to the second movement of your Carmina Burana. So if you don't mind, just take a moment or so and elaborate a little bit more on that. Piece. Sure. So it's it's an interesting part of this piece because it's the only one of the three movements that's not in Latin. Uh, it is sung in Cantonese. Um, the words are classical Chinese. It's a classical Chinese poem from around the same time period when the um, 11th or 12th century or so when the Camino Burana was written. This poem is a poem about unrequited love. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's talking about uh, just thinking about someone in the distance uh, and describing, you know, that, that unrequited love uh, that's there, uh, that will never be. And the interesting part for me is to think about 
using classical Chinese uh, as the basis for this piece, and then also having the chorus sing it in Cantonese, which is a tonal language, and it depends. The meaning of the words and how you speak and sing Cantonese completely depend on the pitch in which you use, the relative pitch contours. And so that informed my thinking about how to translate that into a chorus, which, as you'll hear, uh, became a a chorale uh, where everyone was is moving their melodic lines in a similar way. George, I wanted to ask you about upcoming projects that you may have later on this year or perhaps in 2021. Mm -hmm. Anything new on the horizon? Yeah, so I'm working with playwright Eugenie Chan, uh, who is a playwright based in San Francisco, on possibly a new opera project that we're developing and writing grants for at the moment. Uh, we, we wrote two grant applications together and trying to get support for it. Uh, this would be a, uh, a project that would tell the story about uh, a um, 
someone who left China, uh, who came to the United States, and to uh, and but having uh, to keep a relationship with uh, his mother, who's back home in China. Uh, and so the story is about how, uh, as the communication technologies get more and more easy for them to stay connected, that uh, the immigration policies and anything else around their their story gets uh, makes it even more uh, restrictive for them to get back together in person. Uh, and then the other project that I'm also working on is to figure out uh, more ways to use Cantonese in music, to, uh, to find ways to... Uh, to analyze actually the way that Cantonese has been used um, in pop music, the way that songwriters have used the tonal language and the uh, and uh, through a quantitative analysis actually in a way, uh, and then using that data to create a piece that that uses Cantonese uh, for for a chorus. Uh, it's all very sketchy at the moment, but those are some of the things that I'm thinking of at the moment. The last piece we're going to listen to um, today is your string quartet. I've read that you use a lot of sliding tones in that piece, and I've read that sliding tones are a feature both of some traditional styles of Chinese music Mm -hmm. and also the Chinese language. Mm -hmm. You seem to be very interested in language and how it relates to music. How important is that relationship to you? I mean, as someone who's lived in different cultures, what have you observed with about that relationship? Yeah, for me, I think I've always really enjoyed the idea of musicalized speech. And I think the first time I saw a musical, musical theater, you know, show uh, where I see music and, and a play coming together, actually, this was in seventh grade or so. Uh, this is a big moment for me where I realized, oh my gosh, you can actually combine these two things in a dramatic way and have both sort of augment each other. And so that's partly what drew me into opera, what drew me into writing for the stage, and what drew me to, to art song. And it's particular, uh, particularly interesting, I think, what you mentioned about the sliding tones. Um, for me, it's this, the slide and the sort of in-between notes that we hear and that we sing, you know, uh, even if we're singing for ourselves, and that, that style. Um, it's very much a part of the language for Chinese and also for Cantonese, uh, that there are certain tones, even in that piece that you heard, the chorus piece, Carmina Burana, there are certain notes that uh, were scoop scoop up. And that's partly because those words uh, were, if they were spoken, they would have been a rising tone. And so I think um, I like the idea that even though we're musicalizing speech, that there are spaces in between the pitches that necessarily need to be there, but all for for understanding. But also, me as a composer, I can also add. Like I'm ad- asking the performer to slide in a way, uh, to to improvise, to find the space between pitches uh, in order to add and augment the meaning with music. Well, well, George, I really wanted to thank you so much for being on the Composer Studio today. It was a real pleasure being able to speak with you and explore your music and, and have the listeners experience it. Thank you so much. This is wonderful to talk with both of you, and I'm, I'm so excited to have had the opportunity. You have been listening to the Composer Studio with our guest, George Sequan Lam. Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe. The last piece, String Quartet, recorded live by the Romer String Quartet, May 23, 2014, 
at the Central Conservatory of Music in Beijing, China.
Thank you for listening to The Composer's Studio, available wherever you get your podcasts. And keep listening to the music of today.